Good morning, church. I know I shouldn't do this, but a special shout out to my fire team. I love doing life with other men. It's good to see them all here. It is awesome. I'll be reading from the book of John, chapter 7, verse 53, and then John 8, 1 through 11. They went each to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. That's a great way to enter. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. I also want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube Live right now. Thank you for joining us. This is our Believe Teaching series. We're working our way through the gospel according to John. It'll probably take us another 10 years to get through this. You guys okay with that? Okay, so it won't take us that long. But we've got probably maybe towards the end of this year as we work through this chapter by chapter. This is the way we love studying God's Word. And uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 7, starting at verse uh, 53 into chapter 8, verse 11. The title of this weekend's message is No Condemnation. Also grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along. Here we have a story of failure Abuse, guilt, shame, grace, and truth. Jesus has been teaching. The woman has been cheating. The Pharisees are scheming. In an instant, the woman is caught in the act and drug from private passion to public spectacle. The religious leaders are pointing fingers at the woman and asking Jesus to respond. This story is a beautiful, absolutely beautiful picture of how God responds to our sin. I think this is one of my 
top stories here in the Gospel of John. If you've ever wondered how God responds to our sin, frame these words, hang them on the wall, read them, ponder them, drink them in, let them wash over you, over your soul, and set you free, because they will. There's no doubt about it. Now, before we head into our notes and in, in this text, we're going to unpack this text, I need to give you a footnote here. Maybe you have, as you have opened up your, your Bible, you'll notice a footnote that the earliest manuscripts do not include this. Anybody with their Bibles open, you notice that? And, and so what that means is that really, and my understanding of this as I've studied it, is that most theologians believe this text was in Scripture, but maybe not here in this place. So it's somewhere in Scripture, but maybe not at this point in the Gospel according to John. But all agree that it doesn't bring any major theology into question, and it perfectly represents the mind and the heart of Christ. So that's why we study it and it's important to study. But here's the big idea. Anytime I study a text, I always ask this question. Those of you that are in our uh, How to Study the Bible class, I've been asking this question over and over again. What's the big idea? What's the big idea? Here's the big idea of this text. It's your first couple fill in the blanks on your notes. Christ Jesus, God, responds to our sin with a perfect blend of law and love, truth, and grace. Let's go to the story here and read the first seven verses, starting in chapter 7, verse 53, and then moving our way into chapter 8. They went each to his own house. This is uh, within or after the Feast of Booths, as we've been talking about. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and it's apparent that he sleeps all night, maybe out on the ground under a tree. This is a place where he would go to regularly to, to spend time with, with God, with the Father. And early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Imagine I'm teaching and in walks some Pharisees here at Desert Breeze and they bring a woman that's a member of this church that's been caught in the act of adultery and they bring her up here. Maybe she's partially closed because they caught her in the act. Maybe she just has a bed sheet wrapped around her and they come up and say, Pastor Ray, what should we do? How should we handle this? I mean, this is quite a scene. Right in the midst of his teaching. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Notice the little commentary here. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And then Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. I mean, I absolutely love this. This is classic Jesus. <laughs> cool, calm, and collected. Is he rattled by this? Not in the least. Not in the least. Jesus didn't stare down the accusers in an act of intimidation, 
But this is what he did. He, he stooped down in, in a low posture of humility to de-escalate the situation and to identify and to care for and ease the embarrassment of the woman who is overwhelmed, no doubt overwhelmed with guilt and shame. This is what Jesus did when he stooped down from heaven to earth to draw near to us in our sinful conditions so that he could love us and rescue us. Now, it's important to do a little bit of background here. Anytime you study a text, you want to look at the cultural, uh, historical, literary context. And so let me bring you up to speed here. In the Old Testament, adultery was a capital offense But in the New Testament, capital punishment was abolished. We know that according to 1 Corinthians. Now, the law demands a trial. These guys are just totally bypassing due process of law. They're taking this situation in their own hands. They have set themselves up as the the judge, jury, and executioner. That's what they're doing here. Now, to be convicted, you had to have at least two eyewitnesses who had witnessed the act and be in absolute, complete agreement under cross-examination. And, and, and a couple times they say in the text that they witnessed this woman in the act of adultery. They had to have seen them in the act, not just in, the bed, in bed together or walking out of a room together, but in the act, the very act of adultery. Now, the Mishnah, the Jewish commentary of the law, stated that a court that executed more than one person every seven years was a slaughterhouse. And so almost never was anyone convicted, though a lot of people were still committing adultery because they had to be caught in the act. Now this is obviously a setup by the religious leaders using this woman to trap Jesus. Now I don't know if you noticed uh, as as we read through this story, the situation is a bit suspicious. The last time I remember, I mean, when I think about this, the last I remember it takes two to commit adultery. Would you agree with that? So where's the guy? Were you thinking along those lines? Where's the guy in this story? It's an interesting setup, and I believe the guy is probably in on the trap with the religious leaders who at least two of them have participated in an act of voyeurism. Maybe all of them did. Here's the trap. It's important for us to understand the trap that they're setting for Jesus. Is Jesus going to save the woman and trample on the law? In other words, is Jesus all love and no truth? Or is Jesus going to uphold the law and trample on the woman? See, that's, that would be all truth and no love. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this about Jesus. <laughs> this is where we were a number of months ago, quite a number of months ago. And the word became flesh. Who's the word there? Anybody? It's Jesus, yeah. So Jesus became flesh, God became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us, just as God's presence was in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the very presence of God is with Jesus, is Jesus. And it goes on, it says, he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. 
Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of, anybody know? Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Now, there are two parts to the gospel. It's important to know both parts. It has the part that says, you and I are terrible sinners. That's the truth. A lot of people don't want to hear that in our, in our PC American culture. Oh, that's horrible. You should never call anybody that. Well, that, that's actually what the Bible says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the Bible says that we are all terrible sinners. In fact, the wages of sin is death. We have rebelled against God and we deserve death. We deserve to be separated from God for all eternity. But there's another part to the gospel. So the first part is, it says that we are terrible sinners, but the second part says that we have a wonderful Savior. We have an amazing Savior. In fact, it tells us in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is amazing. So we're terrible sinners, that's the truth, but we have a wonderful Savior, that's grace. Now, now here's the point, and I think we need to understand this, is that if you don't understand your dire condition without Christ, that's the truth, then the magnitude of his provision, the cross, which is grace, will not produce in you unspeakable and glorious joy. I see a lot of Christians these days that have very little joy. And I don't think that they're living in the reality of their dire condition before Christ and now what he has accomplished through the cross. Because that should forever send us through the ceiling with unspeakable and glorious joy, indescribable, indestructible joy. I don't know of any other response to that. And, and what oftentimes happens though is that we let one of the two thieves rob us of the joy and the power of the gospel to transform our lives. What are those two thieves? Well, I believe that both people and churches tend to swing to one extreme or the other. The one would be love minus truth. A church that just wants to talk about love but very little truth, don't wanna talk about sin, that's too negative, but it's love minus truth. In fact, that's deception. It affirms and supports but keeps us in denial about our sins. That's called liberalism. The other extreme is all truth minus love. That's harshness. It reveals our flaws, but in a way we can't hear it, leaving us without much hope. That's that's legalism. And what's interesting is that we tend to swing to one extreme or the other. Here's a test for you. If you think one of these errors is much more dangerous than the other, you're probably partially participating in the one you fear the less. 
So if you came out of a very legalistic church, the tendency is to swing to liberalism. If you came out of a more liberal church, the tendency is to swing towards legalism. I see this happen all the time. I have friends that have swung to one extreme or to the other. I know of churches in the valley that have done that. Now, we're not going to get into any more of that. I just needed to bring that to your attention because you need to be aware of that. But if you want to learn more about that, you can go back in our series, this series, Believe. And, and it was about, it was the, I think it was the first weekend of uh, February of this year, we did a message titled, Jesus Cleans House. And it was in John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25. I go into more detail on each one of those to be able to recognize that in our own lives and even in the life of our church. But here's the point that I want, want you to understand. Jesus responds to our sin with the perfect blend of truth and love. It's absolutely out of this world. It's beautiful. And that's how he wants us to respond to one another. That's the kind of church he wants us to have. The perfect blend of truth and love. Now what does that look like? Well, there's three statements that I believe that he spoke to this woman, that this woman understood, and, and they go like this. Let me just go through them, and then we're going to go one by one and unpack them. Here's the first thing she understood is that you're not alone. Here's the second. You're not condemned. Here's the third. You're not stuck in sin. That's grace and truth. Let's take that first one. You're not alone. Let's go back to the text, verses seven through eight. And as they continue to ask him, so they brought this woman, they interrupted his teaching time, they brought this woman in and is asking Jesus, what should we do? The law says we should stone her, what should we do? How are you gonna respond? So what does he do? He leans down, he's drawing in the dirt, and then he stood up and said to them, this is brilliant, this is beautiful, Most of us have heard this before and even used it before. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He is without sin, throw the first stone. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now what does that mean anyway? What do you think she was thinking when she heard that? Do you understand what Jesus is doing? With that one statement, He's upholding the woman's dignity, honor, and respect by leveling the playing field. What he's saying to the woman is that they're no different than you, and you're no different from them. Before the cross, there's no moral high ground. Before the cross, all people stand on equal ground. All of us are terrible sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in fact, it tells us in, in 1 John 1, 8, if we claim to be without sin, you guys know how that goes? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So even if someone comes across as if they have it all together, <laughs> there's, there's a few folks hanging around that oftentimes act like that. Like, ah, uh, kind of looking down their nose at you, maybe pointing fingers, clucking tongues, you know, oh, look at you. He's, he's leveling the playing field here. James 3, 2 
says we all stumble in many ways. So therefore, we should never have an attitude of superiority or inferiority to anyone. Let me give you some insight into Satan's strategy. I can tell you exactly what he's up to when it comes to our sin. Satan's strategy is to get you preoccupied with your sin by making you think and feel that your struggle with sin is unique and no one can relate or understand, and from then on the battle is won. John 8.44, it tells us, that in fact, this is Jesus saying, and he says, as you, as you read this story out, as, as we will look at in the coming weeks, is that Jesus does come after the, the Pharisees, and he calls them what they need to be called, and he, he uh, approaches them, comes after them because of their bad theology and their legalism and who they are. In fact, he says something like this. He says, uh, hey, uh, you guys, uh, your mama shacked up with the devil and you're the offspring. How about that? And so he, he gets pretty vicious here in, later on in this text, but he doesn't do it here. He's not doing it here. But it's important to understand, later on he teaches and he talks about how Satan is the father of lies. And he's going to come after you with lies. And this is what I found also, he's, he's going to talk about the truth brings freedom. If you abide in my word, then you are really my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's uh, 8, 31 and 32. So think about this. So if truth brings freedom... And I've got some areas of my life where I'm really struggling. I've got bondage in my life. That's probably because you believe a lie. You're letting the enemy get the best of you, and you've got lies in your life because I'm telling you, the truth will set you free. And that's how he's coming after us. Yeah, praise God. Praise God for the truth. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to men. So let me just, let me say this. If you're hiding in the shadows in your struggle with sin here at Desert Breeze, here's my message for you. You're not alone. You're not alone in your struggle. You're not alone. You're not alone in your struggle in your marriage. You're not alone in your struggle with your children, with your parenting. You're not alone in dealing with your finances. You're not alone in your struggle with your job or your health or any number of things. You're not alone. That's what he's saying to this woman. He's, he's leveling the playing field and he's saying to her, you're not alone. We all struggle and stumble in many ways. As I said in James 3, 2. See, that should be the first thing that we should say to anybody that comes in to Desert Breeze. As they come in with their broken lives and struggling and trying to make sense of their lives, we, we need to say, you're not alone. You're not alone. In fact, what I found is that vulnerability begets vulnerability. And as people begin to open up, you're going to find people within that group that say, oh, you too? Yeah. Yeah. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no healing in hiding. Now, how many would agree with me that we live in a culture of stone throwers? Show of hands. I mean, I'll raise both hands on that one. I mean, it's crazy. And here's what's crazy about it. We're swimming in it. And we don't even recognize it, and we can so easily fall prey to it. And I've seen Christians and churches fall prey to it. We love to play judge, jury, and executioner. So, so what does the Bible say as far as how we should approach someone in their sin? Listen to what it says in Galatians 6, 1 through 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any, I'm sorry, let me say that again. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens so fulfill, so fulfill the law of Christ. So if and when the time comes for you to speak to the sins of others, you must first recognize your heart that you are also a sinner who is in desperate need of forgiveness every day. That's the first thing. And it should always be with a broken heart tears because you share common ground with them as someone who desperately needs a savior. And it should never be done with a haughty, condescending attitude that degrades and shames and humiliates the one in sin as these Pharisees are doing. This is outrageous. And yet I see Christians fall prey to that. I can understand the godless world that we live in doing that, but not Christians, not churches. Romans 2.4, it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. When you're appealing to somebody that's in sin, you're appealing to them to turn towards the goodness of God. You do it with gentleness as a fellow struggler, not in an attitude of superiority. So Jesus said to her, you're not alone. You're not alone. Let me just repeat that. I, I think there might be a few here that just, you're not alone in your struggle. You're not alone. Here's the next statement. You're not condemned. Verses nine through 11. But when they heard it, so what did they hear? Whoever's without sin throw the first stone. So when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Here's what the woman heard. So Jesus said, whoever's without sin throw the first stone, and one by one they exited, starting with the oldest. 
Here's what she heard. The sound of freedom. One by one. I mean, can you imagine what that did to her? Now it's just her and Jesus. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, put yourself in the story just for a moment. That's a tender word. He's just saying, sweetheart. That's literally what that means. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Notice her response, no one, Lord. I believe at that moment she put her faith in Jesus. No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Here's what I think we can learn from this, is that if you will keep going to Jesus with your sins, eventually all of your accusers will go away and it will be just you and Jesus. And what you will hear from Jesus is, neither do I condemn you. The verdicts of earthly courts don't matter when you know how you are regarded by the heavenly court. We all have accusers. We all have people coming after us. We have people that say mean and nasty things about us. But when you have the heavenly court, that he says, you're not alone, you're not condemned, (laughs) game over, that's all you need. The God of the galaxies says you're not condemned. Do you understand the implications of that? That is absolutely amazing. Neither do I condemn you. Why was he able to say that? Because I will be condemned for you. Do you know what it cost him to be able to say that? All the stones that were meant for her and for us would come crashing in on him on the cross. Jesus doesn't punish us because he was punished for us. That's the gospel. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I've never gotten over it. It's a mind blower. The God of the galaxies? Says I'm not condemned? Absolutely. I need to hear that every day. Yeah. I'm not condemned. Neither do I condemn you. See, justice demands punishment, but love seeks our justification. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 8.1, anybody know Romans 8.1? Have you memorized Romans 8.1? That's a good memory verse. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Do you hear what he's saying? What Paul is talking about? This is what Jesus just said to the woman. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Here's what it means. That he will never ever 
ever, ever hold your past, present, and future sins against you. That's what he's saying. Yeah, but I'm a mess. Yeah, you are. I've hung out with you. And I am too. We're in desperate need of a savior. Best thing we can do for each other is just point, keep pointing towards Jesus. But he'll never hold our sins against us. There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Here's the, here's the point. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. No one loves you like Jesus. No one forgives you like Jesus. No one heals you like Jesus. No one redeems you like Jesus. I love Jesus. I'm not ashamed to say that. Praise God. I love him. I'm gonna live my life for him. I wanna honor him for what I have in him. Now, if you feel condemned as a believer, that's demonic. It, it isn't coming from your savior. You got the enemy prowling, trying to take you down. Tells us in Revelation 12:20 or 12:10, Satan is the accuser of the brethren or of Christians who accuses us day and night. You ever feel like that sometimes? That he's just dogging you. He's coming after you. He's trying to take you down. And it's the truth that sets you free. The truth of what the Savior believes about you and what he's doing in your life and what he has done for you. Now, this is where I oftentimes get pushback as it relates to this. <clears throat> I know that Jesus forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Anybody hear that before? Maybe you've said it. And that sounds very, very humble, but in reality it's very haughty. It's very proud. You are overturning the verdict of Jesus. What you're saying is that your personal courtroom and standards are higher than his. If Jesus forgives you, believe me, believe me, you're forgiven. If the God of the galaxies bled and died for you and he forgives you, you're forgiven. You're not condemned. Now, we know that here, the problem is that we let the enemy get in because we, we're not taking it down into our heart. We're not living in the reality of that. And we so desperately need the Holy Spirit to make it alive to our hearts. That's why we need to be reminded of it. We need to have people in our lives saying, you're not alone. Oh, and you're not condemned. We need to hear those words regularly. Here's the third statement. So you're not alone. You're not condemned, you're not stuck in sin. He says go and from now on sin no more. Go and sin no more. Notice what he doesn't say. This is a fascinating text because he doesn't say go and sin no more 
and then I won't condemn you. Did you notice the order? He goes, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He doesn't say, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. Because that's legalism. That's legalism. And we want to stay away from that. That's truth minus love. And nor does he say, neither do I condemn you. Go and live however you please. That's liberalism. That's love minus truth. I mean, why, why would you defile the heart and life that Jesus died to cleanse and change? Okay, I accept that, but I'm going to go out and live as I please. Why would you do that? You're not going to do that. You're going to live for him. So you can tend to fall prey to one side or the other, these two extremes. Here's what's so phenomenal about Christianity. When I discovered this years ago, I was wrecked. In Christianity, the verdict comes before the performance. Neither do I condemn you, verdict. Go and sin no more, performance. See, we often think, oh, I gotta get my act together, I'm gonna start living right, and then, and then what? Then God's gonna accept and love you? That's legalism. Or God accepts and loves everybody, therefore I can live however I please? That's liberalism. No, no one loves you like Jesus. He's saying to you, neither do I condemn you because I was condemned for you. Now, from that basis, go and sin no more. In other words, he's saying this will forever change your life if you really understand that and live in the reality of it. The verdict always comes before the performance. You know, it's interesting is that oftentimes when people read the Old Testament, they think it's all law, all the Old Testament. Stay away from the Old Testament. In fact, that's, that's God, be, you know, God in the Old Testament before he got put on meds and now we got the God of the New Testament. Okay, he's just out of control in the Old Testament. And a lot of people really miss the understanding is that the, the Old Testament God is the same God of the New Testament. And the Old Testament God is actually a covenant-making God. In fact, if you were to take uh, Exodus chapter 20 where we have the Ten Commandments, what chapter precedes Exodus 20? Exodus 19, very good. But you know what I was saying specifically. Exodus 19 is covenant love. He says, I have led you out of Egyptian slavery, out of bondage, and I love you, and you are my people, and I have a covenant relationship with you, and I'm gonna do wonderful things. Oh, by the way, Exodus 20, this is how I want you to live in response. This is how I want you to live in response. The verdict comes before the performance. You even see it in the Old Testament. See that in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament. Verdict comes before the performance. In, in fact, with those, those two statements there, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. You've got justification, sanctification. When you think of salvation, you've got justification, sanctification, glorification. So when he, says, go and, when he says, neither do I condemn you, that's justification. He has set us free from the penalty of sin. And then when he says, go and sin no more, that's sanctification. That's where he has set us free from the, from the power of sin. Go and sin no more. Now, if you're struggling with sin, the way that you overcome it is you don't take it to the law, you take it to grace, and you go back to your 
Justification. There's something in your justification you're not fully understanding and living out. And so when we struggle in sin, we always go back to we're not condemned. All that we have in Christ Jesus, because it's out of that, that's what begins to change us. And if I'm not changing the way I should, I don't just try harder, grit my teeth, pull myself up by my bootstraps. I go back to my justification and begin to, to experience and enjoy and revel in that so that that's what ultimately transforms me. The verdict, go back to the verdict. The verdict comes before the performance. By the way, glorification is one of these days he will set us free from the very presence of sin. Praise God. That's called heaven. Yes. Woo. Now, as you're working out your sanctification out of your justification, this is what should happen, and this is what you'll discover, is that the power of sin's promise is always broken by the power of God's promise. So justification, he has set me free from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, he sets me free from the power of sin. The power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's promise. How's that? Well, no one sins out of duty. We sin because it offers a promise of happiness. Everybody that sins, they're doing that because they think they're gonna be happier. And the power of sin's promise is always broken by the power of God's promise. In fact, holiness or sanctification is being so happy in Jesus that sin loses its appeal. What happens is that you begin to, when you understand what you have in Christ, I mean, sin looks cheap, shallow, and ridiculous. That's just what happens in your heart. That's understanding, neither do I condemn you, and then out of that, you're living, go and sin no more. Listen, if you think chasing sin versus pursuing Christ is going to make you happier, maybe for a moment, but you're delusional. You're being deceived. I'm telling you, the more you run towards Christ, the more you become holy, the more it will bring a happiness unlike you've ever experienced before in Christ Jesus. Yeah, praise God. So what does that mean? Let's just spend just a moment on that term, go and sin no more. What does that mean? This is what it means. You are never beyond repair. That's what it means. No matter what you have done or what has been done to you, you are never beyond repair. Now listen to me. Some here this weekend have committed this sin. Some have had this sin committed against them. Some are like this woman who was caught in the very act of this sin. Some of you are like the man who got away with it. But all I'm telling you, you are never beyond repair. I don't know how many times I've sat down with people and they are so damaged by life they just think, I'll always carry around this baggage with me for the rest of my life. I'm doomed. No, you are not. You are never beyond repair. That's why Jesus came to redeem us and to restore us. 
Oh my goodness, that's the business he's in. That's the business we're in. Restoration, healing, hope, future, promise. That's what Jesus does. That's what he does. To remind us of that, that's why in Jesus' genealogy, Matthew 1, Ancestry.com. There is Rahab the prostitute and Tamar the incestuous. What? In Jesus' genealogy? Yeah. Here's the other statement. So when he says, go and sin no more, it means you are never beyond repair. But it also means this. As he's speaking this to the woman, and we are also receiving these same words, that he wants your greatness, your purity, your beauty, your holiness, your wholeness, your ultimate happiness in him. That's what he wants. When he says, go and sin no more, I've got your best interest at heart. That's what he's saying. And so, you're not alone, you're not condemned, and you're not stuck in sin. Now, how does that work out in our life? Here's a number of statements. We'll zip through these. So what difference will it make? Here's what it, the difference it will make in your life. If you begin to live in the reality of this beautiful blend of grace and truth as demonstrated through Jesus, you are free from the perpetual guilt and shame that produces addictive behavior. I don't know if you knew this, but a lot of addictive behaviors is driven by guilt and shame, unresolved guilt and shame, because we have such horrible feelings about ourselves. Guilt is being troubled over what you've done. Shame is being troubled over who you are. And so we try to cover that up. We medicate it. And so you are, you are free from the perpetual guilt and shame that produces addictive behavior. You are free from the unforgiveness and bitterness towards people who have sinned against you. Forgiven people are forgiving people. You are free from the relentless pressure of having to prove yourself because you are already proven and secure in Christ. You are free from the indifference or defensiveness or devastation of criticism. You are free from a cynical, critical, and judgmental attitude toward your opponents or enemies. You are free from a lack of confidence and authenticity in relationships. I mean, you're gonna be open and honest about your struggles with others. You are free from a lack of consistency, confidence, and joy in prayer and worship. Oh, my goodness. When you understand what he's done for you, yes, you want to spend time with him. Yes, you want to adore him. Yes, you want to love him. Yes, you want to bask in the reality of his love for you. You are free also from a Christian life motivated by fear and pride to one motivated by Christ's overwhelming love. And you are free from seeing suffering as punitive punishment rather than purifying. One of the things I oftentimes have people say to me when they're going through some really intense suffering is they'll say, is God punishing me? No. All of your punishment was placed upon Jesus. He's purifying you. He loves you. He's drawing your heart closer to him. Here's the last one. You're free from seeing yourself or your situation or others as being hopelessly beyond the reach of God's rescuing and redeeming grace. Woo! Is that good stuff or what? God is so good. God is so good.
Next weekend, walk in the light, John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. My wife and I will be up front at the end of the service along with any available elders. If you are new, we would love the opportunity to meet you. If you need prayer, we would love to pray with you. If you have any questions about this message, we would love to try to answer those questions for you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. What is God speaking to you through this message? So, Father God, what an amazing portrait you have painted with your son as the hero responding to our sin with a beautiful blend of truth and grace. Remind us daily that we are not alone. We're not condemned. We are not stuck in our sin. And may we be quick to offer those same life-transforming truths to fellow strugglers. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for taking all of our sin, condemnation, punishment, guilt, and shame so that we might stand before our great and holy God forgiven, reconciled, justified, accepted, and the beneficiary of unspeakable promises forever and ever. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys.